God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom, Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And we knew from right then and there, just from reading in the first chapter, even if you hadn't read the book of Daniel before, that there were visions and dreams coming in this book. Because we were told that Daniel was given the ability to understand them. And keep in mind, this was not something that Daniel learned. This was not something that Daniel worked at. This was a God-given ability, um, not something that he had developed on his own. If you remember, the first half of the book really dealt with a lot with the character of Daniel, uh, as well as his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There are not a lot about his three friends, but we did see their character as well. The first six chapters were mostly narrative with some prophecy. And then when we got to chapter 7, the pattern of the book changed. We came upon mostly prophecy or vision with a little bit of narrative added to it. And with all things that God does, there is reason for making this book this way, for formatting it in this fashion. And I believe the reason for that has to do with the importance of the prophecies that are given to this man. As we went through those first six chapters, you could see that the character and the godliness of Daniel was being built up higher and higher, finally culminating in the account of Daniel laying down his life in order to remain faithful to God. If you remember when we got to chapter six, Daniel went to certain death over a matter of prayer. Now, we know that after he was thrown into the den of lions, God rescued him out of that. But Daniel didn't know that that's what's going to happen. When Daniel was taken out and thrown into that pit filled with hungry lions, as far as he knew, he was going to meet the Lord that day. And there's no doubt in my mind that that's exactly how he would have looked at it. But God rescued him. God saved him from that and allowed him to return to his duties. And it says that he enjoyed success in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So Daniel was willing to sacrifice his life in order to remain faithful to God. Now that event was very close in time to the prophecy and the events that occurred in chapter 9. The account of the lion's den was in the first year of the reign of Cyrus, and chapter 9 opened up telling us that Daniel was praying in the first year of Cyrus as well. Now, whether it was before or after that, we don't know exactly when those two events occurred in relation to each other, we can't say, but they were fairly close together in time. And then this vision or prophecy that he receives here in chapters 10 through 12 occurred in the third year of Cyrus, not long after those events. Well, what does that tell us? Well, there are many that look at the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, and I would count myself among them, as one of the most important, if not the most important, prophecies in Scripture. If only from the standpoint that there are so many other prophecies So many other things, doctrines, and knowledge of the future that hinge on that one prophecy that we looked at in that chapter. And that's not to say that other prophecies aren't important, or even as important, but that one prophecy forms the backbone to many, many others. It's kind of like saying, what's the most important part of a building? You could look at different parts of a building, and you could could argue for many different things, But I think what you have to settle on is it's the foundation of the building is going to be the most important part. Why? Because without the foundation, the building would collapse. 
It doesn't mean that the beams aren't important. It doesn't mean that the roof, the walls, the doors, it doesn't mean that the architecture and all the pleasing aesthetics aren't important, but specific attention must be paid to the foundation of the building. And Daniel chapter 9 and the 70 weeks is the foundation of many prophecies that we have in Scripture. So what do we have so far? We have the built-up character of a very godly man. We've seen the character of Daniel. And we have a very important message that has already been given to that man. And we have to ask, are the two related? Is there a reason why this prophecy was given to this man? And I believe that there is. And we saw the reason back in chapter 9, if you look at verse 23 of chapter 9. It said there, at the beginning of your supplication, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. The angel Gabriel comes to Daniel. Why did he come to Daniel? Why did he come to give Daniel this message? He says, for you are highly esteemed. Daniel was loved by God in a special way. You know that special feeling that you get when you're specifically acknowledged for something that you've done? Kind of builds you up a little bit. Everybody from time to time likes to be told that they've done a good job, that they've done something well. Well, what if that came from God himself? Daniel was specifically acknowledged by God here in a very unique way. That's what Gabriel is telling him. The angel informs him that he is highly esteemed. Now, as we come to the 10th chapter... We're going to see even more of this. If you come back to chapter 10, look at verse 11, skip down to verse 11. We see how Daniel's being addressed there. He says, O Daniel, man of high esteem. And then you skip down to verse 19, and again it says, And he said, O man of high esteem. Two more times we see this true of Daniel. We see God's opinion of this man, this chosen servant of his. So the first six chapters showed us why Daniel was highly esteemed by God. It's because of his faithfulness, his never wavering devotion to his Lord. And now in these final chapters, we see God rewarding him for that, using him in a mighty way. Now last time, we just started our study of this section starting in chapter 10. And we covered just the first six verses of the chapter, but there were a lot the things in those verses. And we saw in those verses that Daniel was retired by this time, and he was spending time by the Tigris River. Somewhere, Daniel's somewhere around 85 to 90 years old at this stage in his life. And we see that he was in mourning over the nation of Israel and their spiritual condition. We saw that during this time of mourning, as Daniel had been fasting for 21 days, most likely a complete fast with no food whatsoever, he had a visitor. And he looked up on that 21st day, and it says that he saw a man. And look with me again at the description of this man, starting in verse 5. And it says, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now, After reading this description, it doesn't take, to realize, take long to realize that this was not just an ordinary man. This wasn't just some guy that walked up to Daniel while he was fasting. 
wasn't his neighbor coming for a visit. No, this is a, this is a heavenly visitor that Daniel gets here. And as we talked about last time, I think there's little doubt that this is a Christophany, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ that comes to visit Daniel in this time. The vision that Daniel sees of him is very similar to the vision that John sees in Revelation chapter 1, where Christ visits him in his post-resurrection glorified form in that instance. And that's really where we left off in our last study, as far as we got, with just the description of Daniel's visitor. So Daniel here is face-to-face with Christ himself, with God himself, and now as we come to verse 7 and following, we see the effect of this vision uh, that this vision has. Verse 7 says, Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. As we see here, Daniel wasn't at the river alone. It's the first indication we have that he wasn't just by himself. He had companions with him. He mentions the men who were with me. And once again, we have to admit, we don't know who these men were. It doesn't say. We're not told who these men are. We just see here that he had companions. Perhaps they were Jews that he'd been meeting with, or maybe they might have been just his attendants. He might have had some, some servants with him. Daniel was traveling. He most likely didn't travel alone. He would have either had some traveling companions or, again, possibly servants that went along with him. But evidently, their identity, who these people were, isn't what's important here, or else we would have been told who they were. But what is important is their reaction to what happens here. One thing that Daniel makes very clear, he was the only one who saw the Lord. He says, I alone saw the vision. These other men didn't see the same thing that Daniel saw. But just because they didn't see it doesn't mean that it didn't affect them. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them. Somehow they knew that something was going on. They either felt or possibly heard something because it caused them great dread. I think one of the reasons why maybe this is included, that this had an effect on other people, was so that somebody wouldn't come up and say, well, Daniel hadn't eaten in 21 days, so he was probably just imagining this. But now here we see Daniel saying, this affected other people as well. Something you imagine doesn't affect other people. But what does this remind you of? This is similar to another situation where someone was traveling and saw something, and yet his companions didn't see it, and it, but it affected them also. The Apostle Paul, when he was still known as Saul, on the road to Damascus, is visited by whom? By Christ, right? On the road to Damascus, by Jesus himself. And we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 7, And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. They couldn't see the appearance of Christ at that point either. This is also part of the reason why I believe that this is the pre-incarnate Christ that is appearing to Daniel as well. Similar circumstances surrounding his visits to both Saul and to Daniel. So these men with Daniel, they couldn't see the vision that Daniel saw. It was happening, Daniel could see it, but they couldn't see it. But they might have heard the tumultuous voice. They might have felt something or might have heard the tumultuous voice or maybe it was just a feeling of dread of some sort that came upon them. But in either case, this bothered them to the point where they did what? They ran away and hid themselves, it says. They were terrified. They at least felt the need to hide from whatever it was 
that was happening, it affected them that greatly. But they weren't the only ones affected by it. They were terrified of it. You think, well, Daniel probably loved it. Well, look at what Daniel says in verse 8. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me. For my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. So the vision of the pre-incarnate Christ standing before Daniel has its effect on him as well. What, what does it do? It saps his strength. It turns him pale as death. We might say that this vision took, takes the wind out of Daniel, takes the wind out of his sails. The presence of God is not something that someone can experience and not be affected by, especially when God shows himself in his glory. In the Gospels, people interacted with Jesus every day, right? And they didn't react this way. You could say, well, they were with him every day, and they weren't like falling down. They weren't losing their strength and things like that. But at that time, he was not displayed in his complete glory. But here it's different, and that's seen in other places in Scripture as well. For example, Job, godly man Job, the faithful servant whom Satan could not get to renounce God, says this in Job 42, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. I retract, or I despise myself. Having seen God, Job sees himself in comparison, and what was he compared to God? He realized that he did not compare to God. There is no comparison between us and God. The prophet Isaiah had a very similar experience in Isaiah 6.5, for he said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips." For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In Isaiah 6, when when Isaiah sees the Lord in his glory, sitting on his throne, he recognized just how unworthy he was to even be in his presence. We talked about the Apostle Paul just a few minutes ago. When Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, before he was saved, when he was still called Saul, he was a persecutor of the church. He was an enemy of the cross of Christ at that time, right? And he wasn't just one of the guys who felt that way. He was out actively persecuting the church. He was the man who was leading the charge of the Jews against the followers of Jesus. You could look at Paul as their champion at that point in time. And yet when the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus, when Jesus was right there before him, there was no fight in Saul. There was no struggle or rebellious anger. There was an attitude of, what do I need to do? We looked last time at Revelation chapter 1 when Christ appeared to the apostle John in the comparison to the vision that Daniel has here in this chapter. What was John's reaction there? Revelation 1.17 says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Well, what do you know? Basically, he has the same reaction that Daniel has. This is the reaction of men to the glory of God, the power of his very presence. In the case of Daniel, Job, Isaiah, and John, these were all godly men. These were men that were useful as servants of God that God did mighty things through. 
And yet, even when they were confronted with the presence of God, they fell on their faces, they recognized their unworthiness, and they saw their sinful nature. Even the godliest man by himself is nothing apart from the power of Jesus Christ working through him. It's no wonder that a man like Paul, who went from being the biggest persecutor of the church to being one of the most useful and God-fearing Christians that ever lived, said this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Godly men and women recognize that their greatest strength is in their willingness to get out of God's way when he has work to do through them. It's in those times of weakness that we become useful to God. Not when we're out trying to do it all on our own. Not when we're out trying to solve things by ourselves, when we try to rely only on our own strength. You know, when we look at people in Scripture, at least I do, I'm assuming everyone. If I do it, I'm assuming everyone else does too. When we look at people in Scripture, there are some that we would label as spiritual supermen. They seem to do it perfectly. They have it all together, right? You can point to different people in the Bible and you say, oh, I would, I would love to be, I would love to have the faith of Daniel. I would love to have that, that characteristic. And Daniel is one that we do that with, right? Daniel was a spiritual superman. I'll use the term superman. And we've seen that over and over again in this book. But he wasn't Superman because he was out trying to be Superman. He was Superman because he spent a good portion of his life down on his knees, even in sackcloth and ashes, praying and humbling himself before God. He was Superman because he made himself available to God to be used in mighty ways. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that through the cross of Christ we are now free. But free to be what? To be slaves of righteousness, to be slaves of Christ. He says in verse 13 of that chapter, But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. What are we to do as Christians? How are we to be the most effective? We are to make ourselves available to God, presenting ourselves as his instruments, his tools to accomplish his will here on earth. That's what Daniel did. That's why I believe he was still in Babylon instead of having gone back to Jerusalem when he could. That's why he spent his Passover holiday praying and fasting and mourning over the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. When we have the proper perspective on who God is and who we are, then how can we do anything but submit ourselves to him in total and complete obedience and submission to him? So Daniel here, he says he's a man highly esteemed. He's a spiritual superman, but I don't believe that he ever would call himself that, but I'll call him that. This spiritual superman, when he sees God face to face, it sapped all of his strength. It took all of the color out of him. And that's the effect of being in the presence of God. It affected Daniel and it affected his companions as well. Well, Look at verse 9 with me. 
It says, but I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face on the ground. So seeing the Lord's face was one thing, just seeing his presence, being there with him, but then he spoke, and that was too much for Daniel to hear, to bear. He fell into a deep sleep with his face to the ground. What does that mean? He took a nosedive. Daniel faints, right? Face first into the dirt. And as soon as the Lord spoke, Daniel was out. He heard those words that sounded like roaring waters, a tumult, and he was gone. So he takes a dirt nap. Now, between verses 9 and 10, I believe we have a change of scene here, or at least a change of characters. And this is where there's some debate in this chapter. I mentioned last time that there are some who believe that this was not Christ, that the, person, that the first person that uh, Daniel sees here was not Christ, but it's an angel of some sort. And one of the main reasons for that is what comes next in the chapter with the continuation of the scene. In verse 10, Daniel's going to be touched and awakened. After he faints, after he goes face first into the dirt, he's touched and he's awakened, but there's not a clear delineation to indicate that this is anyone but the same person that he'd just seen and heard. If it's the same person, then there are some difficult verses ahead that make it seem unlikely that it would have been Christ. Most notably, verse 13 would be problematic because of the statement that is made that the prince of Persia was withstanding him for 21 days. In other words, he was being held up for the entire three weeks that Daniel was fasting. You'd have to ask the question, how does God get held up by someone, by anyone? I don't find that likely. So some conclude that this must be an angel throughout the chapter for that specific reason. However, I think there's also um, another likely possibility here, and that is that we have a change of characters. So we come to verse 10, we read this. It says, Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. It could be that this is the hand of the certain man that he's already seen, or it could be, and I think that it is, another being that comes on the scene at this time. This would be the hand of the angel that now starts to speak to Daniel and provides the actual message to him. It was not uncommon for the angel of the Lord to appear in the Old Testament along with other angels. And this is clearly seen in Genesis 18 where he visits Abraham and Sarah. And there are times when the Lord speaks and the angels speak. God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 20, but in the book of Hebrews, in the second chapter, um, it calls the law the word that was spoken through angels, thus indicating that angels had some involvement in the giving of the law, the giving of the Mosaic law. So the appearance of the Lord is oftentimes associated with angels, and he uses the angels for communication, and this would not be uncommon in this case. So Daniel most likely noted the presence of the Lord in the previous verses, and only his presence because he demanded the captivating attention. His was the most powerful presence and the most noteworthy, and he alone would be the center of attention. But now, as Daniel is awakened from fainting, he interacts with the other heavenly visitors that have come as well. The vision of the Lord has disappeared, and now Daniel is left with the angels. Also note something else here. This is a vision like the last vision in chapter 9. These beings are really there. 
This one touches Daniel. Daniel heard the Lord and saw the men, um, and the other men felt his presence, even if they couldn't see him. They wouldn't have been able to feel his presence or hear him, like I mentioned, if this was just in Daniel's mind, right? So this is a real visitation for Daniel. This isn't just something he's dreaming. He didn't pass out and dream this. They really came to him. And so this angel touches him. He gets him to his hands and knees. His strength starts to return to him, but it's not all there yet. He's not strength, completely strengthened yet. It says that he's trembling. He's unsteady. Why is he trembling? Well, it's a pretty nerve-wracking experience for sure, but you also kind of have to keep in mind Daniel's physical state here. Not only is he 85 years old, but he hasn't eaten in 21 days. Uh, and he's just passed out from seeing and hearing God in person. So I would think in that situation, I would probably be a little unsteady myself. Um, so that's most likely what's going on. But in verse 11, the angel reassures Daniel. He says, And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I am about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he heard, and when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. So here the angel reassures Daniel by calling him what? Man of high esteem, right? Which we've, we've talked about. Daniel is a man whom God has graced with his very presence, and now he's going to be presented with yet another important message for his people. He gives him two commands here in this verse. The first command is, understand the words that I am about to tell you. This is very similar to what we saw in chapter 9, where Gabriel was talking to him, and in Daniel 9.23 it says, So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. In other words, pay attention to this. Get this. Understand this. You can't miss what I'm about to tell you. This was a message that was vital for Daniel to understand, and therefore we should see it is vital for us to understand as well. And the other thing he commands him, the second thing, is stand upright. Get off your hands and knees, Daniel. Stand up. And so Daniel stands up. He stands up, although he says he's still trembling. Um, personally, if I was trembling, I'd rather be down on my hands and knees. But the angel tells him to get up, so he gets up. So he's at full attention. He's ready to hear what the angel has to tell him. And the angel continues on with reassuring him in verse 12. It says, Then he said to me, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. So here we get a glimpse into what Daniel was mourning over. He had set his heart on understanding this, it says, and humbling himself before God. What was he trying to understand? He was trying to understand something, it says. What was it? I believe it has to be why weren't the people back in Israel? Really a continuation of what he was praying for back in chapter 9. But two years later, this is still on Daniel's mind. Daniel was praying and fasting to understand God's plan more fully. Keep in mind, the captivity to Babylon took place in three phases. If you remember way back when we were... Studying the introduction, the people came to Babylon in three different phases, separated by about 20 years. 
there's always been a question around when did the clock start ticking in the 70-year captivity? Did it start with the first group, which Daniel was involved in, that evidently is what Daniel was expecting, or was it the last one, maybe it was 20 years later? Daniel was expecting the people to go back, and when they didn't, at least most of them didn't go. Remember, we talked last time there were 42,000 that actually went back, but that's probably less than 5% of the Jews that were in Babylon. But he was unsure what to make of that. So he's praying for understanding, praying for more revelation, and that's really what he's about to receive here. The angel tells him not to be afraid because he's not here to punish Daniel in any way. On the contrary, he was sent just as Daniel started praying, just like Gabriel was in the last chapter. If you remember that, Daniel had just started his prayer and Gabriel was commanded to take him a message. And now we're seeing really the same thing. From the time that Daniel started praying, the angel was sent coming to bring Daniel an answer to his prayer. Now the question is, why did it take this angel 21 days to get to Daniel? If you remember in chapter 9, Gabriel came at the start of Daniel's prayer in verse 4. And he arrived by verse 20. Took him 16 verses to get there, however long 16 verses takes. I don't know how you translate that. But this angel takes him three weeks. So is this a slow angel? Maybe he doesn't travel as fast as Gabriel is. Well, he tells him in verse 13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. So this verse here gives us some powerful insight into events that go on that, for the most part, we're not even aware of. That we cannot see, but they're real nonetheless. This angel left right after being sent. As soon as Daniel started praying 21 days before. So what took him? He was delayed, it says. He was withheld from coming by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. So who's the prince of the kingdom of Persia? Well, this is not a man. This was not Cyrus or any other Persian leader. How do we know that? A man would not be able to withhold an angel from moving about. Plus, how would a man even know to get involved in this? A man couldn't sit there and say, oh, there's an angel coming. I'm going to go catch him. That doesn't happen. I know, I know people say that that happens, but that doesn't happen. So this was not a man. So who could this be? Well, this is talking about a fallen angel. This is a demon here. This is an indication of spiritual or heavenly warfare that's going on here. The prince of the kingdom of Persia, evidently a demon that was specifically assigned to or had charge over the nation of Persia was able to withstand this messenger for three weeks. This is why Daniel's prayer was not answered right away. This is why Daniel had been fasting for for 21 days. You have to wonder, maybe Daniel didn't plan to fast for 21 days, but maybe he was fasting until he got some type of response, and it just took 21 days. But you have to keep in mind. So you say, okay, well, Daniel's in Babylon. This is the prince of Persia. But remember, where was Daniel? He was in Babylon, but Babylon had been conquered by whom? The Medo-Persians, right? The Medo-Persian Empire, the Persians, being the dominant of those nations, had already conquered Babylon. 
So physically, he was in the area known as Babylon, but Persia had conquered Babylon. So Daniel was really in the kingdom of Persia. The Persian kingdom was in charge of the world at this time. So therefore, if there was a demon that was in charge of that kingdom, then the angel would have to contend with that demon in order to bring this message to Daniel. So it's apparent that the demon didn't want this message getting to Daniel. Now, some commentators say that he was trying to stop this particular message concerning the future. And frankly, I don't know how this demon would know what this particular message was. But I'll admit there's a lot about the spiritual realm that we're just not told. We don't understand. Some want to say that this shows that there's an elaborate network of every nation having its own demon in charge of it. And every nation having a guardian angel to protect it as well. And you know, that, that may be. It may not be. I can't say for sure. I don't know that this gives us enough to go on for that. And there's probably a bigger conversation to be had around that. But I do know that there was at least a demon, a prince as it's called here, that was somehow associated with Persia at this time. And he had the power to withstand a messenger from God. So how does he finally make it? So if he's with, able to withstand this messenger from God, how is he finally able to make it? Well, he has help. It says, then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So Michael came to help, one of the chief princes. Michael is one of the only named angels in the Bible. One of the archangels, which alone signifies some prominence with him. But here we see that he has he was also some sort of, of champion. Um, that's apparently his role. Now, it's hard to make that call with just this one reference, but we don't have to. In the book of Jude, verse 9 of Jude, we read that Michael stood toe-to-toe with Satan in a dispute over the body of Moses. He was working or against Satan. They were disputing the body of Moses. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, There's a reference to Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. Once again, he's fighting with Satan. And at this time, he'll be successful in evicting Satan and the rest of the angels from the presence of God in heaven. But there's a purpose to this role that he has. So he's one that has fought toe-to-toe with Satan, but there's a purpose for this role that he has. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 12. If you turn over just couple pages or a page to chapter 12 it says in chapter 12 verse 1 that he's the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people Michael isn't just the head of God's angel army but he's specifically the protector of the nation of Israel and so here as this other angel is coming to deliver a message to Daniel concerning Israel Michael comes in and helps take up the fight. Look at the last part of the verse back in chapter 10. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia, it says. And this doesn't indicate that he was trapped there, but rather this indicates that he was freed up due to the actions of Michael to go about his business in Persia. And that's why he's now there with Daniel. Michael comes in, frees him up to come and deliver his message. So this type of warfare, we think about this, and sometimes, sometimes when we think of spiritual warfare, we think of angels and demons fighting and things like that. Um, I think that sometimes takes us off guard, um, but it really shouldn't surprise us. 
or the fact that nations can have demons in charge of them, um, I think that's entirely possible. I'd say probable. That I mean, I think we see demonic influence all over the place, but, um, but there's control of Satan in the world. What does Paul warn us against in Ephesians chapter... Turn over to Ephesians 6. Just look at this passage with me real quick. In Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, we're probably all pretty familiar with it. Paul says there, Finally, be strong in the Lord, and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is who our battle's against, Paul says. It's against the powers that we can't see, world forces of this darkness. They are the rulers and the powers of this world. Satan has been allowed dominion of this world. Now, God is sovereign. God is always in control. But he has allowed Satan to have dominion in the world. When Jesus was fasting in the wilderness, Satan offered him a portion of the world, and it was his to offer. Jesus doesn't rebuke him for offering it. So to say that his demons are in charge of nations actually makes perfect sense. And that's really what we're seeing here, that there was a demon in charge of Persia. But the angel gets away from him. He's defeated by Michael, however that works. Um, And the angel has arrived. And what does he come to give Daniel? Now, hold on to your hats. You don't think we're going to get done with the chapter, but we're going to get done with the chapter today. Um, We're going to move through the last part here rather quickly. So look at verse 14 with me. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future. So once again, we see this is a prophecy of the future, of the end times. And by now, we shouldn't be surprised at this. But once again, we need to realize here who the recipient is for this prophecy. Who it is that this uh, precisely pertains to. He says, your people, Daniel's people. This is prophecy pertaining again to the nation of Israel. Just like we saw back in chapter 9 when Gabriel told him that his words were for your people and your holy city. We see this same declaration here. And this will stretch out to the latter days, the days yet future. This prophecy will pertain to events from Daniel's time all the way up until the time of the tribulation. The 70th week that we saw in the last chapter. And that's how complete and detailed this message is going to be. Look at Daniel's reaction again in verse 15. And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless. He becomes dumbfounded, overwhelmed all over again. Some even think that he may have even fallen down all over again. But either way, this is a lot for Daniel to take. He can't speak at this point. And for a prophet, that's not a good thing. So to see what happens, uh, we see what happens next, verse 16, and behold, one who resembled a man, a human being, was touching my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke and said to him who was standing over me, O my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. So touching his lips gives him at least the strength to speak. But he then confesses his physical weakness at all of this, his anguish, it says. 
Daniel's, again, physical condition is getting the best of him at this point, and this is almost too much for him to take. He refers to the angel here as my Lord. Um, it is not uncommon to address, to address someone who is recognized as being an authority with this title. It doesn't indicate um, that he thinks this being is God. He could just as well be addressing him as sir by using this title. But then he goes on, verse 17, For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? As for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. Again, overwhelmed, right? He's overwhelmed. He can't even catch his breath. He, how can he possibly carry on a conversation with this angelic being, with this messenger of God? Daniel is simply exhausted at this point. And from a human standpoint, he doesn't feel like he could possibly receive such a message. He knows that what's coming must be incredibly important. And he's wondering if he can make it through this message. And so we see in the following verses that the angel strengthens him again. Verse 18. Then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. And he said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace be with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received received strength and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. So now, again, the angel touches him. First, he touched him on the lips, and that allowed him to speak. Now he touches his body, which provides him with strength. Again, apparently the angels have this ability, at least this angel does, have this ability uh, to have this power to give him strength. We don't, again, we don't know how that works. Um, It's obviously a God-given ability, but he allows Daniel to be able to stand up and receive the message that the angel has for him. So God uses his servants to accomplish his will, whether it be angels or people. So here the angel is not only used to convey the message, but to provide Daniel with the strength to be able to receive the message. Angel tells him not, not to be afraid, but be courageous, calls him the man of high esteem again, reiterates that position that Daniel has. And so Daniel responds. He gets his strength back, probably more strength than he's felt in years. It's kind of like the angel's giving him an adrenaline shot here of some sort. Now, finally, he's ready to hear what the angel has to say to him. So we come to verse 20, and the angel prepares to tell him. Then he said, do you understand why I came to you? Most commentators agree that this is a rhetorical question, not really asking him, to provide an answer, but what he's really asking here is, do you have any idea what it is you've been asking for? As Daniel has been praying for God's revelation of what's in store for Israel, he's going to get more than he ever bargained for. The plans for Israel, I mean, Daniel's probably just thinking, when are we all going to go home? But what God is going to be revealing to Daniel, what the angel this message to Daniel is going to pertain to is going to be more than Daniel ever bargained for. He's going to get the message that required him to be strengthened three times. This is a, this is a triple strength message that Daniel's going to receive here. Now the angel, it's interesting here, verse 20 goes on, he's a busy guy. He, he tells Daniel at the end of verse 20, but I shall return, I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I am going forth and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. And he indicates here that he's got to get back to this fight with the demon of Persia. Michael's been relieving him, but his duty is to get back to that fight. He's not done. It's not like that demon was vanquished and now Persia is free and clear. He has to get back to that. 
And then later on, much later in human years, he, he indicates it here, and this will come out in the rest of the prophecy, he, but he indicates here that he's also going to have to deal with another prince, uh, a demon of Greece at some point in time. Now, again, here we get a glimpse of these spiritual workings. We know that the next kingdom after Persia is going to be Greece. Although that will be many years in the future, but that angel, but the angel here is already anticipating that battle that he's going to have as well. He's obviously aware of how these things are all going to play out within God's plans. But even though he's a busy guy, he's first going to give Daniel this message. He says in verse 21, however, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of truth. And I, I love that initial phrase there in verse 21, because this is a fascinating perspective on the plans of God. We think of the Bible as the writing of truth, and it is the writing of truth. There's no doubt about it. The Bible is the writing of truth. But here we see that God has all these things planned out or written out even before they were given to Daniel. He's going to be telling him what was already written out by God, what was already planned out for the future of Israel. It says, uses the word inscribed here. You know what this tells us is that God's not making this up as he goes along. His plan is already written from start to finish. And it's now just a matter of us understanding what the plan is. So he had it all planned out and he revealed it throughout history to godly men, inspiring them to write it down. And that's what's been handed down to us in his word. And at the end of verse 21, we read this, Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. And once again, he reveals just a little bit more about that heavenly fight. This angel and Michael are all that stand in the way against the forces of Satan. But you know what? That's more than enough. If God determined that they are enough, then they're enough. That's all that Israel needs. Michael here is called your prince. Why does he refer to him as your prince? Well, again, because the angel, he's the angel protecting Israel, we mentioned before. And I think that's an awesome picture that we have of, of Michael. So that prepares us for the message. Daniel is strengthened. He's ready to hear it, and the angel is prepared to reveal it to him. And you can't help but be impressed with the reason why Daniel had to be strengthened, as he was in complete awe of being in the presence of God and about to hear the message that God had to tell him through his messengers. Makes you wonder, what is our reaction to, the, to coming into the very presence of God? How do we react uh, to him being in our lives? You know, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When we pray, we come into the presence of God in prayer. Too often, I think believers have a sense of familiarity with God. We think in terms of being buddy buddy with God. But that's not the picture that I see painted in scriptures of what our action should be, of what our reverence towards God should be. We love Him, we want to spend time with Him, we want to be in His very presence, but there's also a certain amount of awe that ought to overcome us as well. He is everything, and we are nothing. As believers, His presence in our lives isn't just an add on. It's not something that adds a spiritual dimension to our lives. Oh, I'm a spiritual person because I believe in God. 
Not at all. His presence in our lives as believers, if we are truly believers, made us new creatures, changed us from the inside out. It's all because of what he has done that we have entered into a relationship with him and are graciously allowed to cry out to him, Abba, Father. And we ought to live with that in mind. That is a privilege, that is a blessing that we have to even know him much less to be able to say that we will someday spend all eternity with him. And we have to ask ourselves, how should that reality, that knowledge, affect what we do even as we leave here today, that relationship that we have with him? And especially, how does it affect the way that we approach his word, knowing that it's through his word that he is communicating to us? So let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, we just give you praise uh, again for this time that we can study your word and, and just be here together as a body of believers. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to just be able to take these truths and these uh, examples that we have of these godly men in Scripture, like Daniel, um, that you used in a mighty way, men that had reverence and respect for you, Lord, and, and had a proper perspective on who you are. And we just pray, Lord, that we would have that same perspective. Pray, Lord, that we would just understand that um, you are the ones that you are the one that we have submitted our lives to. Pray, Lord, that we would act that way. Pray that that is how we would conduct our lives as your children. And we pray, Lord, that we would just serve you with every fiber of our being. I thank you, Lord, for uh, this truth. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for the way that you communicate with us each day as we read in your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to take the truths that you've given here. And use them in our lives to bring glory and honor to you. I pray, Lord, now that you would be with us um, as, we, as we leave here, as we go into the next hour. Pray, Lord, that that would be a time that would honor and glorify you. Pray, Lord, that we would worship you, Lord, and give you praise. And I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified by all that we do. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.